Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to the podcast that we're calling TMI, The Motivation Inside. I hope you've been enjoying these weekly podcasts if you're a regular listener. Uh, our goal here is to give you a glimpse inside of how things really work professionally and personally. This way, you'll always get to see not only who I really am, but hopefully there'll be some level of self-discovery too. I want to share with you the many faces of success and wealth and to let you in on how uh, some of us got here because it's important to me that people understand, and I really do believe this, that there's greatness inside of everybody. But there's always some level of fear. There's always some level of uh, fear of risk-taking, trepidation. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, I find that if you just push yourself off the ledge, you can figure out quickly how to fly before you land on the ground. It takes a lot of hard work, some intense focus, but the possibilities are there. It's up to you to find what motivates you to get you to your path. TMI is a place where I really am asking you to ask us anything. Uh, Share with me a crazy story, a wild story, a weakness, something you're self-conscious about, maybe a strength. How about a piece of advice that you learned from a mom or dad or a grandparent uh, uh, that's helped you in your life? Uh, email it to me at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com, and we'll talk about it here, uh, and I'll tweet it out, uh, because of what the goal should be is that we should be helping each other achieve our dreams. Each person has an individual fingerprint and an individual story, and there's no reason why success can't be shared in a multitude of different ways. Uh, just a reminder, I'm the founder of Skybridge Capital, a global investment firm with about $13 billion under management, but I'm also a Fox News and Fox Business contributor, and I'm the co-host of the iconic television program, Wall Street Week, which airs on the Fox Business Network Friday evenings at 8 p.m., Saturday morning at 9 a.m., and then again on Sunday at 9 a.m. I've written two books, The Little Book of Hedge Funds and a book in 2010 called Goodbye Gordon Gecko." That was a fun one because I uh, tied it into the Wall Street 2 movie. And I'm about to come out with a third book, uh, which is a handbook and manual on entrepreneurship, which will hopefully be out early October. Uh, Just again, another reminder, not a typical Wall Street guy. Uh, I don't live uh, in a fancy house, and I'm living about two miles from my parents. I do it on purpose. Uh, I asked one of my last guests, What's your grounding wire? My grounding wire has always been my family uh, and the people around me that I think are the most important, which is why I I cart myself out of the city every night, uh, at least when I'm home and not travel. Uh, Maybe some of you listeners can relate to that. Today, I want to talk to you about madness and friendship. Okay, you heard me right, okay? I said madness and also friendship. Okay. The guy I'm looking at right now that's laughing into that microphone has been my best friend. And frankly, I had Paul Montoya here, my best friend from childhood. Uh, I've got Gary Kaminsky with me here. Uh, he, him and Paul and a guy named Todd Magazine and a few others like Bobby Gashrigdano and Bob Matza are my best friends from adulthood. Uh, but uh, Gary and I have known each other for 34 years. I might also add that he is the other co-host of the iconic show, Wall Street Week. Uh, And I will tell you this, I was super nervous when we started the show, even though I had been on television a lot. Uh, And Gary uh, was a total pro from the beginning, having had the television hosting experience. Uh, We've seen quite a lot together. 
We're both Long Island boys, and I'm hoping we're going to get into a discussion about what that really means. Uh, Sean Hannity knows what that means. Bill O'Reilly knows what that means. Billy Joel knows what that means. Uh, but without further ado, please welcome my co-host of Wall Street Week, an original CNBC squawk boxer uh, from 25 years ago, I might have, uh, an author of Smarter Than the Street, How to Make Money in Any Market, Fox News and business contributor, uh, the, the great and warm and absolutely mad Gary Kaminsky. What an introduction. What an intro. Thanks for being here, bro. But answer me, why Why the hysteria all the time? Why all the cuckoo lala? And I know your wife's listening and your kids are listening and all your friends are listening because I know you, you're texting and tweeting out, listen to the podcast. So why the cuckoo lala? We all want to know. All the people that love you are listening in right now. We just want to know why the cuckoo lala. You know, you talked about motivation and and I actually get motivated I think, on a daily day, daily basis by chaos. I think that there are certain people that like to have structure. They like to be organized. They like to know professionally what they're going to do all day. I actually think what drives me is that I love to deal with the unexpected. You never know what's going to hit you. You never know what's going to happen. And so... Great question. I think that's what pushes me every day. So there's a little bit of hysteria in the mix sort of like energizes you then, yeah? Yeah, I think that days that are – a lot of people, Anthony, strive to have professionally a day that they know what to expect. They're going to go to this meeting. They're going to meet this client. They're going to have a lunch. They're going to go home. They know exactly what their day is. That, that doesn't work for me. My DNA, that doesn't work. I need to have – uh, curveballs thrown at me, this crisis, that happens, and I get I get pushed every day by having to figure out how to solve problems. But you also get a little nutty when you're doing this, though, so why? Why do you get so nutty? I show up 15 minutes late for the taping, <laughs> you flip out, you're yelling at Susan, you're yelling at Gary Schreier, the producer of Fox. Okay, why? Why do you get so crazy? <laughs> okay, so now we're really getting into, like, specifics here. Yeah. What I feel, as somebody who led a team, and, and I think it's very important for leadership, is that you need to always be setting an example. And I've been very frustrated. So when you got trapped in the tunnel and you were an hour and 15 minutes late for one of the early tapings, did I get all reactionary and crazy? I just answered no, the question. No, but do you remember how apologetic I was? I felt so bad okay, yeah, that I was late for that one Yeah, because you come in with a flamethrower when but other people say, are doing things wrong. No, but, so let me finish the but thought. But I do admire no. your search for perfection no, let me, on certain Let me finish things, the thought. The and so... But by the way, the let me give a newsflash to listeners. We're not perfect. I think we all need to yeah. know that. And I think, I think what upset me, not necessarily, and Susan will know, what not, it doesn't upset me for myself, but I really am always thinking about the other people that are sitting around, the people that were working behind the scenes. Right. So, right. and you know, and you know, sincerely, right. that's we're, that. We're that was break what the into some other stuff right now because wow. I want to make this interesting for people. So, yeah. I'm looking at the tattoos on your arm, yeah, the yeah. George Hamilton tan, and, uh, yeah. and uh, you know the the St. Bart's looking T-shirt, and all the little like cuckoo puku beads, and your flip flops yeah. and everything. Yeah. What type of drugs are you taking? And I'm not talking about Lipitor. <laughs> what, what kind of drugs are you using? <laughs> Listen, we, we only have about 50,000 listeners. Go ahead. What kind of drugs do you take? Listen to me. What I'm wearing when I'm not wearing business clothes is just kind of what I'm comfortable in. 
you know, so it's we, very binary. Okay, it's either beach bum or five thousand dollar Brioni, right? Is that what it well, is? It's very binary. You wear the fancy suits. I I do get. I, I I don't wear the very expensive suits, but yes, I I am more comfortable. Believe it or not, I do wear the, the fancy be- suits in the beach because bum. I was wearing polyester and I got criticized for it in my first job interview. So it made me neurotic about the dress code. Yeah. But go ahead. No, no, I mean, I. I uh, I am comfortable. I'm comfortable dressed like a beach bum. That's true. All right, let me switch su- subjects. I really that's need I love, to know. You know, that's why I love the beach in California. I really need to know the answer to this. I thought you okay? wanted to talk about St. Paul. No, 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 let's just open up here for a second. I really mm-hmm. need to know the answer to this. Why does Maria, and I'm yeah, referring yeah. to Maria Bartiromo, love you so much? That's what I'm trying <laughs> to figure out. Okay. What, what, what is it? <laughs> Okay, just tell me what it is. We're trying Maria to figure and it out. I, Maria I mean, and honestly, I, honestly, everybody's trying to figure it out. You reference you reference twenty five years. Yeah, Maria and I go back twenty five years. I was literally, I think, with her the afternoon after she broke the mold and went live from the New York Stock Exchange, which was a not just a tremendous day for business television, was a tremendous day for the entire way the public. Uh, see financial services, and she broke that mold. Let's let's talk about that because I actually think this is an important point. Gary, how many viewers do you think there were? Two million, a million and a half. What was the number back then? Gosh, I have no idea. But yeah, so I, I, I I'm going to guess at this. We'll have to go look back. But, yeah. uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about two million viewers, which is a very big number watching financial news. We're lucky to get 150, 200,000 viewers now. Is that well, fair to say? Well, there's a, you, we could talk about why that is. But back then, it was the first time that the general public felt that they were inside a club. And Maria bringing the cameras down to the New York Stock Exchange. We spoke to Dick Grasso about it when, when he joined us uh, on Wall Street Week. You know, Maria bringing those cameras down there was a, was a huge thing. So we have a relationship, mm-hmm. to answer your question, that goes back 25 years uh, I, I like to believe it's a tremendous respect on on, on my part about her, yeah. and I think it's mutual She's respect. One of the hard, yeah. And I think you're just a little bit. Of, you, I think you are a little jealous of the fact yeah, that of course. when I walk into the studio, oh, the you hugging, may, you, the may you may be there for three hours, kind of like trying to chit chat with Maria, have get a conversation. I have a great relationship with Maria, you and, just, then, and then I just don't get the whole lovey dovey thing between you and her. Okay, so now I want to I want to switch I want to switch gears here. Okay. You're that got very, you upset, right? What's that? That got you upset. Not at all. I love it. That's why I'm, I, I, I love it. I, I know you love it. I, yeah. I, let me tell you something. There's a lot of questions I'm going to ask you. All right. That Shoot was away. your favorite question Shoot for away. sure. Okay. That was your favorite. Shoot okay. away. You're a very successful guy. How'd you grow up? Tell us about your upbringing. So um, I grew up, I, I guess I would call it upper middle class, upper middle class in Long Island on the South Shore. I wouldn't call it upper class because uh, my dad, while working in the business, the business was really very different back in the 60s and 70s. Um, there wasn't a tremendous amount of money made, but it certainly was more than average. Right. Your dad uh, made more money as you and I became adults. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. I think that for the most part, when when in the 80s and 90s is where you were able to really create significant wealth uh, in, in, on Wall Street. But we grew up, we grew up in a, my brother Michael, who you know, Michael and I, we grew up in a household where hard work and basically the idea that you had to, you had to prove yourself almost on a daily basis was, was sort of the norm. Okay, so I want to, I want to My parents were very, reflecting back, my parents were very strict. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was a strict upbringing compared to a lot of my friends who did not have that same sort of household. Okay, so but but I want to I want to ask you this. I want to get your sociological observation. Obviously, you and I are trying to raise children and yep. trying to help them with their paths and motivate them and so forth. Uh, but you grew up 
upper middle class. Mm -hmm. And so you had more probably than the average person in the town. That's the definition of what upper middle class is in terms of your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But, and I got to pay a huge compliment about this, I think you're uh, an incredibly hard worker. Uh, you built an incredibly successful reputation for yourself. I watched you work at Newburger Berman. I know what your skill set is. And so where did all of this motivation come from? It was parental strictness. What was it about you inside? What was your internal clock? How did you verve it up like this? Well, definitely my parents were a major influence in the idea that I might have had friends in the neighborhood during the summer, as an example, as we're now in summer vacation time, where a lot of my friends might be kind of, quote, hanging out, you know, work like a part-time job, spend a lot of time at the beach, go out every night in the city, back to, that was the days of Studio 54 and Xenons and all. But my parents had an attitude that, you know, you need to work. And so most, most What was summers, your first job, yeah, yeah, like your first summer job, what was it? Remember? Well, I worked as a, as a cabana boy at the beach. I remember that. Um, yeah, you told Carl Icahn that, actually, yeah. when we had him on in the fact, show. In fact, Carl and I, you know, Carl and I both uh, worked at the beach club. So I worked as a cabana boy, which meant um, it was great that you were outdoors, and it was great that you were having to interact with people who were much older than you and successful. You're in a service business. Yeah, so I, made, I, I, you're, I, you're, swept, I swept cabanas. I brought the chairs out to the beach. I love the idea that I was outside and I was doing physical activity, which is something that I that I think even for young people today, it's great to learn how to work with uh, work with other people. But then, additionally, I was a busboy and ultimately a waiter. In addition to working at the beach all day, I would go to a temple, um, Temple Israel in Lawrence, uh, on the South Shore of Long Island, and on Fridays, on Saturdays, on Sundays, I would work weddings, uh, private affairs as a busboy, as a waiter, uh, even before I drove a car. Many times I would ride my bicycle to the beach, was about six miles, work at the beach, ride the bicycle, go to the uh, temple, and then sometimes get home at one or two in the morning. Right, so you learned how to make a buck, right? Yeah. You're out on Long Island, you're hustling, you're hustling for tips, servicing people. So it got you motivated, right? So you ended up going from high school to Syracuse. Well, I went to, I originally went to Northwestern. Okay. Um, and then I, I went to Northwestern as a freshman, and I decided to transfer my, my sophomore year. I transferred to Syracuse University, where I, where I wanted to go to the Newhouse School, the uh, right. so you made, public Right, so you majored in radio, TV, and film management, right? I did. And you, you wanted, at that time, if I remember correctly, you wanted to be a, uh, a Hollywood agent, or you wanted to do something in Hollywood originally. Is that fair to say? Well, I didn't know at the time. I, I didn't know in college what I wanted to do, but I was very fortunate that I was able to, um, after college, go out to Los Angeles and, and like anybody, trying to break into that business. So you're in the mailroom at William Morris, is that, uh, is that correct? I worked in the mailroom at CAA. CAA. Uh, worked as a, what's funny now, uh, I thought it was really important when I got this title as assistant coordinating producer at ABC, which just basically meant you were a glorified runner, but they gave you the title. And like a lot of people who were trying to break into that business back then, I uh, had various different jobs, you know, because most of them are freelance and most of them are short-term in nature. Did you like it or not like it? Well, what I eventually figured out was that what I really liked about that business was the business side of the business. And I don't know if you and I have ever discussed it before, but the way I ended up going back to business school to get my MBA in finance was because I was desperately trying in 1989 88, 89, to get into the business side of the entertainment industry. And I ended up meeting with a couple of people 
through a relationship back east that worked at Drexel Burnham, uh, where Mike Milken at, at that time was in sure. his, was, was obviously one of the most powerful people in the industry. Mm-hmm. And ironically, Anthony, I don't know if I ever told you this story, one of the people who I met with said to me, you know, if you really want to pursue the business side of entertainment, you should go back to business school and get an MBA. What was funny and ironic was that most of the people, as you know, that worked there, not only did they not have an MBA, a lot of them didn't even go to college. Yeah. Because they hired a lot right of people out of, out of college. Right out of high school. I remember that. But I, re- I was I – Mike Ovis used to talk about it, that. It, it, stunk, it, 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 it sunk into my head. All right, go back, get an MBA, and you'll be able to reapply and get one of these business development roles in the entertainment industry. But you ultimately want to come to Wall Street, though, right? So something clicked. You said, you know what? I'm going to move in a, in a direction of the world of Well, fame. what happened was uh, I came back east to go to uh, business school at NYU at the Stern School. And um, at, when a lot changed between 89 and 90, Drexel Burnham, where I was hoping maybe to go back to Los Angeles work, went bankrupt, and the firm shut down. And that's when those huge changes in the industry We've had a lot, you know, right, since So this then. is February of 1990 is when Drexel collapsed. Right. And I graduated from NYU in May of 1990. And um, I met with a hedge fund, kind of just give people an idea of what we're talking about. May of 1990, I met with a hedge fund, JRO Associates, had $100 million of capital at that time. Which was a lot of money which for was, the was, was a tier one Goldman Sachs. No, your, 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 no question. Uh, your, your shot. I was an institutional salesperson at that time, and JRO was at the top of the leader list right. for commissions. It was, it was a tier one firm, yeah. and I convinced the uh, one of the co-managing partners there, Mark Howard, who's one of, my, um, uh, one of my great mentors, I convinced him that because I had a background in the entertainment industry and I knew a little bit about the entertainment business and now I had a financial MBA, he should hire me to be an analyst following the movie companies. And ultimately, I got hired as an analyst to cover media, leisure, entertainment, and then eventually the airlines. Well, and you loved it. I did. I found that, going back to your first question, like sort of why am I crazy, what motivates me, I loved the idea that every day you would come to work and you didn't know which company was going to – this was in the pre-internet days. So doing actual research, fundamental research, was invigorating because you could go out and meet with a company and you could get the edge. You could get the edge Mm -hmm. back then. This is also before Reg FD, and so just for uh, non-financial viewers – Reg FD stood for full disclosure from the SEC, and basically they said, okay, a company, you're going to give out information, you got to give it out on a certain date at a certain time, you got to give it out to everybody. But prior to Reg FD, what Gary's referring to is that really smart, investment-oriented, research-oriented hedge fund manager slash analyst could go out and do their own field research, got to build a close relationship with the CFO. The CFO was okay with leaning and giving them guidance as to where things were going to go. Is that yeah, fair to I would, say? I would also say it's not just – it wasn't just developing relationships with the management themselves. We've had a number of guests come on Wall Street Week and tell us they don't talk to management because management never tells you anything bad about the business. But it was an environment where you could go talk to suppliers, customers, clients, really get a feel for a business and have an advantage. And it was uh, – it was uh, you know, I found my calling at that point in terms of loving to invest. You – you went to work with your dad, and we've had Jerry on the show. We did a great Father's Day special with Jerry, and, you know, I'd known Jerry forever. Uh, but what was it like 
working with your dad. There were obviously pluses, but there probably were some minuses. So, so, so what was that like? So, so JRO, after I had been there for a couple of years, it was pretty obvious that there was going to be a change to senior leadership there. Uh, the, the, the two partners were sort of having a different opinion of how where to take that business. And my father and I, and I think my father had mentioned to you many years ago, Anthony, that we never talked, he never encouraged me to go into the business. We never talked about working together. He said that on Wall Street. Yeah, but at the time when I was thinking, okay, I need to find something else to do because the hedge fund I was at was going to go through all these changes, we talked about let's try to work together. Uh, he had had 25 years in management and 25 years at that point since he had gotten out of Harvard Business so, School. So tell us what year this is roughly, Gary. This is going to be 1992. And, um, you know, working with family, there's so many great uh, – one thing, a lot of listeners here probably work in family businesses or they think about working in family businesses. When you work with family, it's a great, great thing because you know the people, you trust the people, and there's so many positives. But, you know, also we were concerned about making certain that the personalities that there was – that there was – that one plus one plus one – equaled four as opposed to three. And, and, and the issue, Anthony, really was, did we have personality traits that would complement each other to try and grow a business? Because I think the lesson here is if you're just going to work with a family member and the family member is just giving another family member a job and they don't complement each other, it's not going to work. No, it's not going to work. And you're going to breed discontent. And then because you're family members, you're going to be too emotionally pumped up with each other, and it's going to be damaging to the relationship. Gary, Team Kaminsky, which is your family's team at Newberger Berman, run by Michael and Jerry, uh, also the money manager for my IRA and my rollover, uh, they've done a very good job. Tell us about the philosophy and your philosophy on investing. Well, Team K was created when my father and I left Cowan after the merger with uh, Cowan and Societe Generale over to Newberger Berman, whereas, you know, Michael had already been there working with two partners, Joe Lasser and Jack Ferraro, and actually Chris Lockwood as well, three partners. And we merged those businesses together in um, 19, uh, 1999. And the general philosophy, Anthony, is really a philosophy that we all shared in investing, which is that the power of compounding is the real way to create wealth. A lot of people talk about capital appreciation. They talk about the stock of the day or the stock of the month. But historically, people don't ever talk about, in the media especially, that half of the returns, when you look at historical returns of stocks, is dividends and distributions reinvested, compounding the, 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 the compounding of your money. And so the general philosophy of the all-cap core strategy was to take advantage of companies that could grow their distributions, return that to shareholders, and over the cycles, identifying those businesses would produce outsized returns over just indexing a portfolio of stocks to the market. And that was something that was like a hybrid, though. Your dad had part of that. You infused some of your own personality into that. And so one of the cool things about working in a family is that you guys were so close to each other that you could finish each other's sentences but you also help to refine an investment style. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. And I think that, as I said earlier, you have to complement each other. When you looked at that team, uh, obviously Michael, my father, and myself, my father is very analytical. Uh, he's a great macro thinker, and uh, he's got a great sense in terms of looking at the world and trying to find uh, value. 
Michael is, uh, who was a lawyer like yourself by training, is um, also very analytical and a great research analyst and was excellent at figuring out from, uh, while my father would have the top-down philosophy on how we build a portfolio, Michael was excellent at, at building it from the ground up. And I found that when we all started to work together, I was a good, uh, I was a very good person at figuring out how to make the, how to turn what was a good stock picking ability into a business. Uh, and, and, and we grew that business from $2 billion of assets under management uh, to $13 billion of assets under management in a time where the, the S&P had vir virtually no return. And we did it by generating total return, absolute performance, but then having a business strategy on top of it. As you know, there are many people in the financial world that are great PMs, but they never grow the business. And well, conversely, there's a lot of people that grow their business to huge amounts of assets. Well, you did a masterful but, job. But they don't have great performance. Well, we had the right combination of good performance and good business strategy. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I give you huge credit for that because you, you raised billions of dollars and you ran billions of dollars successfully. Uh, but I also say this to you that I learned a lot from you guys because when I got Skybridge started, I tried to create that hub and spoke mechanism for distribution. And yeah. so I give you guys a lot of credit for that. Uh, would you like to work with your children in the business? Ooh, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, I think that if my, uh, my, my kids, only one of my three sons has shown any interest at this stage in, in the finance world. And um, as Tommy? I said, it's a, it's a, uh, that's it's Tommy. Tommy. That's right. my middle son, Tommy, right. uh, who's a junior at Dartmouth. My oldest son, James graduated from UNC two years ago, uh, has, uh, he works in TV sports, and he's in NBC Sports, where he's a producer and a researcher. My youngest son, uh, William, is going to be a senior in high school next year. I guess that having the lessons that I learned about what we went through, I would never say no, uh, but I would go into it certainly with a cognitive—I would go in there with—I with with would go into the situation— we're trying to think out everything, Anthony, trying to think out everything that could go wrong as opposed to what could go right because you never want to hurt a family relationship over business. It's just not worth it. Family is so much more important than business or money or anything like that. I, 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 and I totally agree. I want to I go to uh, a little bit of a personal story. I want to take you back to the 2006, 7, and 8 time frame. You're working at Newberger Berman. You're in Team K. Yep. You feel a little bit unsettled about Lehman Brothers and the situation. And then you decide that you're going to, amicably, of course, but you're going to separate yourself from Team K and Lehman Brothers. And you got out of the business right before or six months before. I'll let you tell the story before Lehman Brothers went down. Yeah, so Newberger was acquired by Lehman Brothers in 2003. And so we were a wholly owned subsidiary of Lehman Brothers after that acquisition at the time of the financial crisis. And again, at, as you know, Anthony, when Lehman Brothers filed Chapter 11, filed bankruptcy in September 2008, Newberger Berman was not part of that filing and continues to thrive today as an independent investment, uh, investment advisory firm as it has for, for almost 100 years. So tell us the story. It's funny. I, I don't think I've ever talked about this story uh, in public before, so this is uh, going to be interesting. 
Again, I talked earlier about fundamental work, what I liked at JRO, which was doing your own research, trying to figure things out. And in the summer of 2007, if you remember, the two Bear Stearns hedge funds collapsed. And I was actually on vacation so at the time. Just, let's just update the viewers. Yeah. There were, I mean, the listeners, yeah. there were two fixed income. Hi, fixed income four, hybrid. Four-ish billion dollar hedge funds. Which were primarily invested in the subprime mortgages that ultimately created the collapse. They were highly leveraged. Correct. And they were internal at Bear Stearns, but they had taken in outside money from investors. Correct. And it was- and an, they, they failed due to- they failed due to the leverage and some of the poor investments when uh, when when individual homeowners began to stop paying the mortgages. Right, so the default rates went up on subprime mortgages. And just so people who are non-financial, what are subprime mortgages? Well, those are people that really don't have high incomes. Uh, but the bank will say to those people, listen, I'll tell you what, we'll give you a loan to have you buy your house, but it'll be at a higher interest rate than people that have higher incomes than you. Though subprime means that it would be over the prime rate of lending. Right. And, and so, so those mortgages started failing as the economy weakened, right. which tipped us into the financial crisis. But if you watch Wall Street Week and you saw Kyle Bass, uh, who was one of the early um, uh, hedge fund managers who was very early in identifying this, or many people saw the movie, many listeners probably saw the movie The Big Short, so they know a little bit about this. Um, it was at that point that I was actually on vacation – uh, with my colleague, who you know, Anthony Richard Werman, uh, with our wives. We were in the Greek islands, Santorini. I was down at a little, nice little cafe down at the beach there, and my cell phone rang. And it was, uh, this is now August of 2007, and it was one of the managing, uh, one of the, the managing partners in Newburger Berman at the time, saying that, um, where are you? Dick Fold is going to be having a meeting out at his house, Dick Fold being the then CEO of Lehman Brothers. He's going to be having a meeting out at his house in Sun Valley, and he's inviting a handful of executives to go out there uh, to talk about what's happening. Can you make the meeting? So I said, well, I'm going to be back in uh, New York tomorrow. They said, okay, we have uh, two of the Lehman jets flying out to Sun Valley, one from Teterboro, one from White Plains. Can you make one of those planes? I went out there expecting that there was going to be a meeting about what was going to be the strategy, what was going to be the strategy of the firm, because we all owned a significant amount of Lehman stock after the acquisition, after what was beginning the crack of the financial system. I was very surprised at that meeting that it was more of a cheerleading uh, rah-rah session that Lehman Brothers, which had weathered storms in the past, especially the 1998 financial crisis, uh, without getting too into details, uh, the, there was a number of hedge funds that collapsed. There was a Russian currency crisis. And Lehman Brothers had, in the past, weathered these storms. And their strategy was, well, we're going to do it again. When I came back, we talked about the idea that maybe um, it made sense for us as a team, given our growth, uh, given our somewhat independence. And this is a lot of problems with a lot of mergers. You know, cultures clash. Systems don't work together. People don't work together. You know, we felt at that time uh, in the fall of 2007 that we should identify and look for a spin-out. In fact, you may not recall, you introduced me to the banker at Sandler O'Neill, who we hired at your suggestion to look to spin the team out. Ultimately, I'll fast forward, we, we tried to bring a number of deals to Lehman Brothers. Each time we brought a deal, they 
did not want to pursue the deal. And ultimately, I made a very tough decision, uh, you know, personally, that it was in the best interest of me, for me and for the rest of the team, given what everybody's objectives were at the time, that I would retire. Uh, because in this industry, that's how you separate yourself out. I give you a lot of credit. And I remember being at the core club out on the patio after the Bear Stearns demise and you walking over to me and telling me that this was the first big Richter scale movement and that there was an even bigger earthquake coming and that many people on Wall Street were not prepared for it. And in particular, and this is something that was shocking to me, I have to confess this, Lehman Brothers was not prepared for it. And I remember thinking, geez, I thought Lehman Brothers was very well managed. Uh, but they had a blind spot as it related to the amount of leverage and the leverage ratios that they had on. And, of course, you and I have learned after 30 years in this business that the 10,000-year flood happens every five years. And so we have to be super cautious in the way we run these businesses. Well, well you didn't ask me the question, but I'll answer what I think is a good question. What did you learn from that experience from Lehman Brothers? The problem with Lehman Brothers was that you had a management structure in place where it was a fear structure. And the CEO created a culture where no bad news ever fed up to him. Yeah. And so while a lot of so people at Lehman Brothers... a little bit of a kiss-up, slap-down culture. Yeah, I, I didn't you like You and that. I know a lot of people yeah. over there. We're not going to mention them by name yeah. uh, on, I, the, on I, the podcast I like that, here. But, but I, think, I think Dick surrounded himself by some sycophants. That's the truth. And I think to this day, Dick But Falk, I thought Dick was an honorable guy. I like Dick. Unbelievably honorable guy, very hardworking guy, and he bled Lehman Green. But yeah. the problem was he had too many people below him that would never pass up the bit, the bad news to him. Right. So if I could give any advice on this podcast of what you want to do with a company, you need to have people yes. direct reports below you who are going to give you bad news yeah, every day. Absolutely. Because if you have slap, people that only give up. you good news, it's a, it's a success can't, for failure. Can't fix a problem if you don't know about it. And unfortunately, the CEO is, has a limited window of time and opportunity to do things, so they really need, need information. How much do you rely on your intuition, Gary? Great question. Uh, I would say 70%. My wife would say much too much. My wife would say I make decisions too fast. I'm impulsive. I think that it's a strength that I can see a situation and most of the time make the decision on the fly. All right, so we're going to go to a couple of these emails. Uh, This is Jose in Connecticut, Gary. Uh, I've been observing your career for at least two decades. Uh, uh, I, I found you to be not only a great investor, but also an awesome media personality. Are those two things conjoined, or are they separate skills? Well, to me, success in media has been just being yourself on the camera. And I guess as a good investor, it's also being yourself. Right, so it's the self-awareness, being comfortable with the self-consciousness, uh, were you nervous the first time you showed up on Squawk Box or your first television appearance? It's so funny. I had no idea what to expect. The the late Dan Dorfman brought yeah. me out to CNBC. Yep. And I it's met a, very terrific, briefly the first terrific week. Terrific guy. The old timers remember Dan Dorfman breaking news, writing for the Wall Street Journal, you know, being on CNBC, moving stocks. Absolutely. His the legend. Reports. The yeah, legend. The legend. So, so Dan, who I had met through JRO, brought me out there where they were launching Squawk Box, and Mark Haynes, also a great person, the late Mark Haynes and a dear friend, said, who was hosting Squawk Box at the time, we met briefly in the green room five minutes before we were about to go on air, and I said to Mark, um, tell me what do I need to know? He said, you don't need to know anything. You know, 
And then I, next thing I know, I was on the set chatting stocks, talking about the market with no preparation and, and no guidance, and it just uh, took off from there. Do you think that the, uh, the, the time at CNBC made you a better investor? Well, I think it did because what it did, it made me a better investor because it made me aware of some of the things that make markets move day to day. I was never, I would have been the worst day trader. I mean, if I tried to be a day trader, I probably would have lost all my money the first day. What I learned while I was at CNBC is what makes the day to day moves and, and those that are trying to trade the market, what's in their DNA, what's in their mind, what makes them think. And so when you are aware, Anthony, when you're aware of what those movements are day to day, it makes you be able to look at the bigger picture in a better way. Yeah, but I think you, 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 you taught me something. I also have to give you a lot of credit because you brought me over to CNBC. You helped me with my television career. You introduced me to Susan Krakauer, but a, a ton of people over there. But, but you said something to me early on. You said, I'll tell you what, you're going to learn a lot being on CNBC because there's going to be a lot of guests that come on that you're going to interact with and build relationship with. And guess what? They'll become resources for you in the business. And so that was something I learned from you. I want to keep going to some of these emails, though. Yeah. Joe in Chicago, why has your friendship with the Mooch lasted this long? What's the secret? That's also a great question. You know, as I talked about how you have to complement each other, uh, you and I are like two pieces of a puzzle, you know? We sort of get each other perfectly. We know each other. And we fit, we are, we are stronger as a unit than we are individually. We're both very strong personalities alone, but together, I think that we are, we are unbeatable. And I think that no, that's I, the success. And, and obviously, and I, and a I love, tremendous. And I, love, and I love doing the show with you. Tremendous amount of loyalty. I love going off on me. Like when you, you're, you're meeting me at Le Pan Quotidian at <laughs> 8 o'clock in the morning and you're blasting me with a fire hose. That was a and, great breakfast. Yeah, song. that was a great but breakfast. But you see, but, there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there. What's the lesson? you got to get stuff off your chest. If you've got an yeah, issue, really, yeah, exactly. you gotta, you got to sit so down. Gary was very pissed off at me that morning for some of the stuff he felt that I was doing wrong as he came in and he opened up the fire hose on me and was spraying me up against the uh, counter at Le Banquet Didion. But, okay, in fairness, a lot of things he says were right, and I had to apologize to him. Some of the things he said, he must have been off his medication. He was completely nuts, and I had to tell him that as well. But I do think that the secret to our relationship is that uh, – I think we can accept each other's personalities, and I think this is true about relationships. If you're looking for the perfect person, the perfect political candidate, the perfect employee, the perfect this or the perfect that, you're making a very big mistake because there's no such thing. What you have to do is what you said. You have to complement each other with an E, meaning be, be compliments to each other, but you also have to complement each other with an I, meaning boost each other up and offer each other compliments. And you have to, you have to know that none of us are perfect at all. And what you have to do is you have to protect the other person. You know, I'm always going to be there to defend you and vice versa. And that's yep. a very, very important thing, especially in this industry, where you've got a lot of people on Wall Street that are insecure, shallow. Uh, um, uh, they, they are so worried every day. Competitive, too. They, they measure each other. I find the most revolting part of our industry, and it may be true in Hollywood and other yeah. industries, I could be at a cocktail party. If a guy thinks he's worth more money than some other guy, he brushes him off. Yeah. If the guy's worth more money than him, he gets the knee pads out and puts them on his elbows. Okay, I find that sort of stuff absolutely revolting. 
I tell the summer associates here, I tell my children, treat everybody equally. Treat everybody with kindness. Uh, if they're being obnoxious to you, you can shove them a little bit. Well, you look, treat, about, treat you look around equally. at our friends in the industry after 30 years, I think we could compliment ourselves that we've surrounded ourselves with the right kind of people. Yeah, but I'll pay you a huge compliment, okay? In, in 30 years, okay, you really haven't changed at all, okay? You got the, you're a very loyal friend. You got a lot of intensity about you and passion for life. Uh, you can see it reflected in your beautiful children and, and your wife. But the cool thing about you is that you know how to collect friends and you know how to be a great friend to so many different types of people. Okay, so I got to give you a huge compliment on that. Uh, I'm going to let you go in a sec, but I got a couple more questions. What's, what's a day in a life like for the great Gary Kaminsky? What's it like? Well, today, today a good day is doing some sort of physical activity. Right, so you big workout maven, that I know. Yeah, I'm very into hot yoga now. That's my new thing. How did you sit still to write the book, by the way? I mean, the book was oh very... My God, that my, was... My mother has your... Just so you know, your biggest accomplishment in life is you're on the coffee table in yeah. my mother's house. You're yeah, right that, there. That was, that, was a, that was probably one of the most difficult things I've had to do. To, a, a good day starts with me today if I have an opportunity to do some hot yoga. That, that's, that's really what I'm enjoying. As I get older, it's much harder to run. Obviously, you know, I, I was always a big runner. And... Um, you know, I measure a good day if the people that are close to me are healthy, they're happy, they're successful, and they've had a good day. It's, I look at my good day based on my family and the people I care about if they had a good day. That's a good way to put it. All right, so, so we're, we're going to finish up with one last question. This is uh, 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 Dinah. She's in Pittsburgh. Gary? Excuse me. My husband and I are both long-term investors. Where can we put our money to keep it safe during these volatile times? Well, the, the quick answer to that is that there is no such thing as 100% safe money. We've all learned that over the last 10 years. That, that, that's, that's the first thing. So my philosophy has always been if you need, when you reference safe money, if you need that money in the next year or the next two years and you need it to pay for your children to go to college or you need that money for an expense that you know you're going to have, you don't invest that money. And especially in a 0% interest rate world, you keep that money in cash. Uh, that's the first thing that you always got to think about. As I alluded to earlier, if you have long-term capital and you can withstand the volatility mentally of the markets – History, as much as my father said when he joined us on the show, history will say that equity returns over a long period of the cycle will outperform other asset classes. But you've got to be willing to live through the volatility, and you've got to identify companies, little plug for the book now, Smarter Than the Street, which we talked about this at great length, identifying companies that can grow organically without having to access um, stock buybacks or dilutive acquisitions to grow their business, that they can grow organically, and they could, and then they have a philosophy at the management level to return dividends and distributions to you as a shareholder. That philosophy over cycles will significantly outperform all and, other investment assets. classes. you think that's still possible today, given the turbulence in the market? Well, I think I expect all asset classes are going to have significantly lower returns. We've talked to every guest on Wall Street Week in the last year and a half about it. We're in a very different world for the next 25 years. And I say 25 years. The, the low interest rate environment and the negative interest rate environment is going to have a major impact on all returns on all asset classes. So if 10% was the long-term return in equities, 
Maybe it's going to be 6 or 7%, and it's going to be low single digits in fixed income, which means that people are going to have to work longer, they're going to have to save more money, and they're going to have to think about their lifestyle as it relates to assets. So, so our, our producer, uh, who helped us get Wall Street Week started, Susan Krakauer, uh, she's firing in questions now. I love you like a brother, but I got to ask you, will you ever calm down? This is Susan asking me? Yeah. Absolutely not. Never, right? Absolutely not. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't the fact that. is, she wants to berate me every day. Yeah. But if I changed, and like the few times when she calls me and I don't like yell at her or get in her face, she's like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, right. What's wrong that, with that's you? That's true. So, I mean, so it's funny. She wants it. to know. She wants right. to know if I'm going to calm down. Right. And then the few days where I'm actually calm, she's like, is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, Are you she okay? She something wrong. Maybe yeah. she thought you went for a shock therapy or you got a lobotomy or something like that. All right, I want to thank the great Gary Kaminsky for being here. Gary, you know I love you. You've I love you am- too. You've been an amazing friend over the years. Uh, and I want people to follow Gary on Twitter, at Gary Kaminsky. Uh, don't forget to watch us both on Wall Street Week, Fox Business Friday nights at 8 p.m., Saturday at 9 a.m., and Sunday at 9 a.m. And we thank Fox Business for replaying those because uh, some of our viewers watch it at different times that are forming good habits. And by the way, if you're not watching it, Gary and I want you to put it on in your spare bedroom. We get credit for those ratings, too. <laughs> and be sure to subscribe to my podcast, TMI, uh, with us here on iTunes. And please go rate and review it so we can continue to bring you the content that matters most. And also, if you wouldn't mind, please share the podcast with friends and coworkers who you think would enjoy listening to some of our wacky and wild stories. Follow me at Twitter, at Scaramucci. Until next time, have a prosperous week.